Outliers in Education is brought to you by CEE, the Center for Educational Effectiveness. Better data, better decisions, better schools. To find out more, visit effectiveness.org. Some schools are better than others. That's the simple truth of the matter. But what is the actual difference between schools that soar and schools that struggle? How does one school find success where so many others are finding failure? Well, thanks to the efforts of a crack team of researchers, we have some exciting new answers to those questions, answers that could change the face of education in America. Today, we're digging into the just-released Outlier study on, you guessed it, Outliers in Education. That's what we're all about, in letting our kids be successful. If you want to achieve something, then surround yourself with the people you want to become. Because kids are kids in small districts, rural districts, urban, kids are kids. Folks, greetings and welcome to what is really a foundational episode for Outliers in Education. That's because this month, the Outlier Study, the very study from which this podcast takes its name, was officially released out into the world by CEE, the Center for Educational Effectiveness. The Outlier Study has a much more complex official title. It's actually called Characteristics of Positive Outlier Schools, Illuminating the Strengths of the American Indian, Alaska Native, Black, Latino, Latina, and Students Experiencing Poverty. It just sort of rolls off the tongue. And accordingly, it has also produced some deep and complex findings. Today, to help us find out what that really means, we have with us some of the authors, educators, and researchers who have spent the past three years creating it, starting with none other than our very own co-host, Eric Bowles. Bowles, is that your name I see listed here with these other illustrious authors? Uh, Indeed it is, EP. I had the great good fortune to start with CEE a couple years back and became aware of the outlier study as I onboarded. In terms of the study, Honestly, I'm really more of a carpetbagger of sorts. The study was well underway when I joined the organization, and I was honored to carry the clubs of the other incredibly skillful contributors to this research. Studies are only as strong as the people actually doing the work, and I'm proud to play a small uh, but meaningful role on a powerful team of research. I love that image as a caddy. Uh, And today, it's our honor to have two of your co-authors from the Outlier Study Team. Both of you have careers spanning decades in education. Both of you have literally helped to change the face of education across Washington State, and now with the Outlier Study, are continuing to do just that. Let's say hello, folks, to Dr. John Steech and Dr. Jean Sherritt. Welcome, gentlemen, and we are so excited that you're here. Well, thanks so much. It's an honor to be part of it. Greetings, Eric Squared. It's great to be here. (laughs) Okay, Dr. Sherritt, I'd like to start with you. Now, seriously, you've done it all as a teacher, a counselor, a principal, a superintendent, an ESD superintendent, on up to years serving as part of Governor Inslee's cabinet. Frankly, we could spend the whole podcast just trying to map out your renowned career. But let's just start with this. How is it that you came to be a part of the outlier study? Well, thanks, Eric, so much. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have been champions for early learning, K-12, and post-secondary education for some time. They've supported a number of the Washington State initiatives over years and wanted to explore the possibility of expanding that support with a stronger focus focus around equity and opportunity for all K-12 students. Dr. Mary Alice Huschel, a former colleague and recognized K-12 Gates Foundation and Washington State educational leader, connected with the Center for Educational Effectiveness with the possibility 
to explore conducting a comprehensive study of Washington's approximately 2,400 school buildings to determine which of these buildings had a history of seven factors resulting from steady learning improvements for black, Latinx, Native American, and low-income students. I had worked for the Center for Educational Effectiveness on numerous school improvement projects over the years and knew of their research, program evaluation, and measurement reputation over those years. Uh, through a very thorough vetting process, uh, CEE was selected to take on this comprehensive study. The effectiveness group asked me to join as a team member and actively to participate in this study, and I was honored to do so. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sherritt. And that brings us to our second guest, Dr. John Steech. Dr. Steech, you've spent nearly 20 years in educational leadership, earning your doctorate in education from Washington State University, and ultimately becoming the CEO of the Center for Educational Effectiveness, where you've played a vital role in creating this study. So what does the study release mean to you? Well, Eric, on a personal level, this study is very validating because the findings of the study really reinforced many of the initiatives that I was in the process of implementing as a superintendent and during my time as an educational leader. And it also very closely aligns that the work CEE does with school districts and individual schools on school improvement and trying to improve that culture to better meet the needs of students. Um, professionally, I think this really gives us a stronger voice because much of this work has been um, underemphasized over the last few, you know, historically and even in the last few years. And I think this study will hopefully give people that leverage tool to say, it's not all about focusing on academic first. Often there's other things that are foundational that need to be in place for our students to be successful in school. Well, thank you both. And we're gonna back up a little bit to, uh before the study really began, uh, you talked a little bit about what gave rise to the study, uh, that needing the perspective of the historically underrepresented, um, needing to know what worked. Um, tell us why this is so needed now. You bet, John. Start and I'll follow. So this is needed now more than ever. And I'm almost going to jump into what I'm sure you're going to ask me later. But in light of the twin pandemics that we just faced while we were trying to perform this study, we saw major changes in how we're trying to deliver education through remote learning at the same time that we had major racial upheaval in our country. And the students that we, population that we were looking at and the staff that we were talking to, the students we talked to, we really were targeting many of those students to find out what about these schools really works for them? Because we need to change the, mo the model of education in order to make sure that all students truly are reaching their goals and aspiring to their dreams into the future. And now more than ever, I think we have the permission, if not the mandate, to move forward and try to make schools better for all students, not just for those who have fit the historical mold that public ed education provides. You bet. Well said, John. And I would uh, only add to John's comments, I think that we are at a time where equity, access, and opportunity are really important for K-12 education. We're also at a crossroads where we are not able to move the needle on around 15 to 20 percent of our kids graduating from high school. 
So the effort here is to move that needle, focus on equity, access, and opportunity. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, and and I'm going to start here, Dr. Steech, with you. And I'm going to ask you not to get too technical and understand that you're speaking to me as the audience. And, and I don't think I'm bragging here, but as a really sharp second grader, how was this study conducted? So we started off by getting data for every single student in the state of Washington over a five-year period. And then we picked some measures of success that we wanted to take a look at. And we picked seven measures. So reading, math, um, language acquisition, attendance, ninth grade credits, you know, passing classes, um, dual credit opportunities, which gave us an indication of the rigor of high school coursework and then graduation rates. And we did a comparison through a bunch of statistical analysis that I won't get into. Um, but all kinds of regressions and combinations of regressions. And out of that analysis, we created a plot that had a, every school represented as a dot. And we looked at the very top of that plot, and out of 2,400 dots, we picked 38 that we thought really represented schools that were doing something far and above other schools for our black, Latino, Latina, American Indian, Alaska Native, and our students experiencing poverty. And then we got into those schools and we talked to people. Um, we had hoped to do a lot more data acquisition, but with the pandemic, we had to scope things back. But in the end, we talked to people and we talked to people and we, we listened, we recorded. We then took all of those recordings, we had them transcribed, we put them into a computer system, and we, we started to take all of those things that were said and we grouped them into themes. And out of those themes, we said, what are the people really telling us? And, and I think the difficult part of this study was not to say, what did we hear from these people? Because when you say, what did I hear from somebody? You're applying your filters and your lens to that information. But we really wanted to say, what were they telling us? And so that took months. I mean, it took three to four months of synthesizing and synthesizing to really get down and say, this is what people actually told us about these schools. And in the end, that's what the findings are. They're a summary of what the staff, the building leaders, the students, and the parents told us about the schools that were doing such a great job of serving those kids. So the, so the way that you, you kind of selected those, uh, and when you were talking about dots, just to clarify, the way you selected those were, were schools that were outperforming other schools in that particular band? How would you describe that? Well, that's what we call outliers. You know, you, you draw a line through all those dots that's the closest thing to a straight line to represent those dots, and you look at how far above that line are certain dots. And when we chose the schools, they were dots. We didn't know who was who. They were dots with a 10-digit number. And so we would circle a dot and then look at the data around that dot and say, do they really meet this criteria for all the kids? Because we wanted them that we wanted to make sure we were picking a school that not only was serving the black students in their population, but they were serving the Latino Latina students. They were student, serving their students experiencing poverty. So they had to be an outlier with all the groups of students that they had in their student body that they were serving. So we had a few dots that we said, no, you're not quite making our threshold of what we want for an outlier. And we went to the next one and went to the next one. And we finally came up with this list of schools that literally are two to three standard deviations from where you would think they are. So they're performing at that 99% above the average of what you would expect. So those dots then became those schools that you went and did these interviews with? 
Correct. And I would just add, uh, standard deviation is a big term. Uh, so one of the ways I explain it is with when you're north of two standard deviations in height as a male, you're north of 6'8". So that's a big deal, being two standard deviations above. Well, Eric, it is a big deal. And to, uh, just to add and reinforce what John said, uh, it was really important to listen to voice and also to understand the context of the school. Uh, the study was not designed to do a roadmap for do this and you will be good too, but rather to take a look at the context of the school, the demographics around those students, and really take a look at the attributes of what, what made these outliers so outstanding. And when you got into that interviewing process, what did, what did that look like, Dr. Sherritt? I mean, that, that, that's, I mean, yeah, that's a lot of people to interview, a, a lot of voices to hear. What did that look like? Well, you're exactly right, Eric, and I think John said it very well, too. This was complicated by the fact that uh, we ran into COVID-19, you know, in the pandemic. We had every intention of going out to those schools individually and doing focus groups with parents, families, communities, interviewing students, staff, et cetera. And all of a sudden, we had to pivot uh, to doing Zoom, and we were concerned whether these schools would pivot Every single one of the schools pivoted. They were excited to be part of the study. They were excited to share their story. And we embraced that, but we were doing five, six Zooms a day and uh, recording everything, transcribing everything. John said it very well. This was a Herculean effort to do this work on a qualitative side. Yeah, the silver lining to COVID was that our schools were spread across the state. Um, we had a really even distribution, everything from the Bridgeports of the world to the Kents and Seattles, um, and geographically hit almost every corner of the state of Washington. And if we would have done those in, purpose, in person, there was a whole lot of traveling we would have been doing. And so in some respects, it was nice to be able to do an interview in Kent and an interview in Zilla and an interview in Hawkinson all in the same day. Well, thank you for sharing that and uh, want to expound on that a little bit. Tell us about the hiccups or the surprises that uh, happened along the way. Things that maybe were more challenging, things like John just alluded to that were maybe a little bit less challenging. You know, what were those surprises and learnings? One of the surprises, I think, Harry, was the fact that we were overwhelmed with the support from the schools. When we had to pivot in February to Zoom meetings, I think that was a worry. But... The cooperation of the district was so overwhelmingly supportive that it, I think it just shocked us all that they were willing to move away from trying to get 35 fourth graders to get on Zoom with no access and spend their time after school, because a lot of these were done late in the afternoon for these folks, to participate tells a lot about these teachers in these schools. Yeah, and some of the data that we really wanted to collect up front um, we wanted to do staff, student, and parent surveys. And last spring, as we went into school shutdowns and then distance learning, schools were surveyed out and they looked at us and just said, we're not gonna add one more survey to this. We also wanted to go get a feel for the community. And we were talking to, to Dr. Gordon about this just today, Janet Gordon, one of the um, co-authors. And she said, we would have loved to have sat in coffee shops and gone to the local um, Walmart or Walgreens or the, whatever the local store is and just talk to people. But in, you know, we were all shut down. So that kind of data collection just didn't happen. So, you know, there was a little bit of frustration with not, with not being able to do that. But piggybacking on Gene, after about the first 10 interviews, we decided to add a question because we had heard a common theme. And we started asking people, how did participating in this interview make you feel? And we would have teachers in tears saying, 
It really validates the outstanding work that we knew that we were doing every single day that we have forgotten over the last three months when we haven't been able to be in a classroom with our kids. And it really makes us miss that family environment that we have created that makes everyone feel welcome. And we're scared for our kids because we're not there to take care of them. So I'm curious, like when you're when you were having and that sounded like an emotional uh, reaction when you originally talked with these folks and said, hey, you're an outlier school. How, how did they respond? Were they like, yeah, no doubt. Or were they like surprised? I think, Eric, uh, most of them were humbled. I think that would be a key word right there. I think, too, they were honored to participate. Uh, and to, uh, to the person, they gave credit to other people, their colleagues, their parents, their students. So humility, uh, credit to others, and, uh, uh, and anxious to share, I think would be three criteria. So the moment we've all been waiting for here is, what'd you find? Tell us about the findings. What are the big themes, the big deals? You bet, Eric. Well, there were a lot of big deals here, but we'll be brief. And I think the big thing is that these were equity-based, student-centered cultures with strong servant-based leadership, with a ton of good collaboration between the teachers up and down the system, with a lot of parent and community support. And the administrators on these particular schools use a lot of support structures, comprehensive scaffolding to make sure these students uh, caught up on these things. There was a culture of learning by all the teachers. It was an equity mindset that all students can succeed at very high levels of expectations, provided the support they get. And there was an intentional focus on student empowerment, student voice, and student engagement. So, so I'm curious, you, you got to hear a lot of stories when you go in and have this conversation with these folks. It, within those stories and those findings, what were some things that were really kind of ringing in your ears after you heard the stories that related to some of those big themes? You know, I talked a little bit earlier about the, the, them saying that they feel like a big school family and all our kids are all our kids. And, and, you know, I reflect back to one story of a teacher who was sharing that she had had a student at the beginning of the school year that she just wasn't able to connect with and couldn't figure out why. And so she went and talked to the teacher that had had that student the year before who said, oh, fabulous kid, was, you know, high performer, everything was going great. So the two of them came up with a, a retroactive transition plan where they had this student going back into his previous teacher's classroom um, for about an hour a day. And it was, you know, they planned it out for hopefully only about four to six weeks. But the two teachers then would meet every day after school and debrief. And last year's teacher actually act as a facilitator to improve the relationship so that this student felt more comfortable in the classroom. And to think that the two of these teachers just did this because that's what the student needed. Nobody told them to do it. The student didn't ask for it. The parent didn't ask for it. It just it, it's what that kid needed, and that's exactly what the staff was going to do. I'd add to that, too, and I think John did a marvelous job on that. We found relationships matter a great deal. The relationship between the teacher and student was key uh, in those schools, that connections matter uh, for these kids when they feel engaged and honored and value, and their voice is uh, something as listened to and applied at the school. Uh, this particular study was unique in the sense that it really embraced the strengths of diverse students, not the deficit. And these schools were schools that did not use deficit-based language. And so these were really important things. They eliminated that deficit-based vocabulary that was decision, uh, uh, data-driven decision-making in these schools and really a culture of lifelong learning for both the staff and the administrative team. 
I think one thing that, that I wanted to point out is 16 of our 38 schools during the, no during the NCLB era, they were labeled as the bottom 5% in the state of Washington. Wow. And so when we talked to those schools and even the schools who weren't labeled that way, almost everyone described some catalyst for change that had occurred. And whether that was the fact that they were labeled an NCLB failing school, whether that was a new leader who came in, who looked at the current reality and said, this isn't good enough for our kids, whether that was some community event. And it was a whole series of these stories that had led them to come to that realization that we're not serving the kids in the way they need to be served. And from that catalyst for change, it moved into how do we get beyond adult issues and turn this into student issues? So getting beyond and, and resolving all of those adult-like issues and then bringing student voice into it and actually listening to the students and, and hearing what do the students need to be successful and then talking to their families and then going out and figuring out if we can't get parents into the school, how do we go out into the local community and whether that's into the businesses where we had a school that worked with a local um, employer who had a large number of their parents where they would actually do parent teacher conferences at the at the the work site. So they would the, go, they the, went out. Did, sorry. They went out to the work site to have conferences? Yes. With, Teachers no. would go to the work site to have parent-teacher conferences, and the employer would work with them and stagger lunches so that they could meet with multiple parents. That's awesome. Those are the innovative type things of saying, how do we serve the community and how do we serve our kids? Not how do we make them fit the K-12 system? Th that's amazing. I, I can't believe that you were talking about these these schools being outliers that were at the bottom. What You said the bottom 5%, is that correct? Bottom 5%, and now they're in the top Two percent. So, so here's a here's a question that's just kind of dinging around in my head. Then is to say, smokes. If that could happen with a, a school at the bottom of the barrel, um, so so if I'm a school and I'm looking to say, so how can I do this? What are some lessons here that I can use? What would you What would you tell somebody, a principal or a superintendent, that's wanting to do that? Now, I, I think you know. I, I outlined you've got to have that catalyst for change, that felt need for change, and you have to put the adult issues behind you. And then it's how do we create an equitable system for all? And equity um, needs to include ownership. So how do we bring in student voice to where the families and the students have ownership in the school and they feel like it is their school, not just a place they go, but a place that they own and they belong to. And it's the culture that really launched the work that was done academically to get these students, uh, schools to the point where they're outliers academically as well as outliers in the social emotional support that they provide to students. So before Dr. Sherrick gets in here, you're saying culture was kind of this launching base to get to academics. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Wow. Exactly. Yeah, wow. yeah, certainly culture is the bridge that brings that forward. And I think your question's a good one, Eric, in that schools that have a readiness to benefit will learn a lot from this study. And I think the things they could do, of course, would be to connect with these schools to find out about uh, the context of the school and the demographics to talk about that. Also to be good listeners, to visit those schools, and also to do a thing that we're currently doing, and that is to uh, develop a community of practice where they could learn from these schools as well. Tell us a little bit more what a community in practice entails, Dr. Sherritt. Well, it's a group of individuals coming together to solve a common problem of practice. So they have common demographics, common context, and they learn from one another. What are the problems that we share and what are some of the solutions that we can brainstorm to help not only my school, but your school as well? Well, thank you for that. And uh, 
clearly, I love the reference to ownership. And, and that really, I think, creates a different understanding around equity. And Dr. Steech and Dr. Sherritt, you have owned this podcast. Um, so tell us, how do we find out more about the study itself? Well, the best thing you can do is go to our website at effectiveness.org. And we've got a research section on the website. And you can go in, you can see the entire report. We have a 10-page brief that then can link to the entire report, as well as this podcast will be there. And as we produce more podcasts that align with this work, um, our goal is to go out and talk to many of these leaders and get here, capture their stories on how did they get from the bottom 5% to the top 2% and what were some of those strategies that they employed and those systems they put in place to make sure that as one leader transitions to the next that they don't lose that momentum and that school keeps growing over time. So go to our website, you can find all of that information under our resource page um, and we'll continue to build upon that in the months ahead. Bowles, I have to acknowledge that you are like the master of synthesis slash summary. So I know that there's a ton of stuff in here that we could talk for hours on, but but what's your big takeaway? Well, I'm not limiting it to one this time, but I am going to try to keep it brief. <laughs> going to start with uh, going to start with some qualities and characteristics I heard, just words I took away. Starting with culture is key. The, the atmosphere of above and beyond, the study really started with a strength-based perspective as opposed to looking at the deficits. Um, outliers' persistence and honoring context moves the needle. Schools were kind in telling their stories. Practitioners felt validated to be able to participate. The key themes, family, equity, uh, equity-based culture, strong leaders, strong collaborative teachers, uh, supports uh, across uh, the system, student and family and community support, and, and above all, relationships. And I would end with a quote. Uh, it's actually a paraphrase because I won't be able to come up with the exact words. But our good friend, Dr. Chuck Salina at Gonzaga University says something to the effect of, what we see in this, in this study is common sense, but it's hard to make common sense common practice. And I think that's kind of the big overarching theme for me. So hopefully that's the, synth the synthesis you were looking for. If not, we know our producer, Jamie Howell, is a marvelous editor. <laughs> well, to you, Dr. John Steech, and to you, Dr. Gene Sherritt, and to you, my partner in podcasting here, Mr. Eric Bowles, I'd like to congratulate and, and offer a sincere and heartfelt thank you to you and your entire team at CEE for making this study a reality. I, I just think it's a seminal study. Well, you're very welcome, and uh, I'd like to express our appreciation for the generous support for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which made the study possible as well. Well, and thank you for letting us be here, Eric Squared. We've, I've really enjoyed it. In fact, you know, if you've enjoyed it half as much as I have, I've enjoyed it twice as much as you did. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> well, that's, that's two standard deviations, Dr. Steech. So here on Outliers in Education, we will continue on our mission and commitment to bring these remarkable stories to life in, in ways that can be helpful to other educators, schools, and districts around the country. And if you'd like to find out more about the Outliers study, you can find the research brief, how to access the study itself, and other resources at CEE Online at effectiveness.org. Until next time, this has been Outliers in Education. If you'd like to find out how to gather the data you need to help drive positive change in your school or district, take a moment to visit CEE, the Center for Educational Effectiveness, at effectiveness.org. Better data, better decisions, better schools. Effectiveness.org.